welcome to episode 69 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I'm looking at your face right across the room from me. Listen, I'm looking at your face, and it is beautiful. This is the in-person cast. It is. I'm super excited to be face-to-face to have some good time to just actually talk to each other. This is real conversation right here. It is. So, Jesse. Tony. We, we talked a little bit about this, and what we want to do in our kind of New Year's episode, this is going to be the first episode of 2018. That's right. Is we wanted to talk a little bit about... Um, the issues that we looked at and saw as kind of prominent issues in 2017 and sort of our top three uh, issues that need to be addressed by the reform community in 2018. Let's get it. So, uh, Jesse, why don't you start us off with your, in no particular order, your number three most important issue of 2018. So what's been on my mind and I think would be good for us to get back to is the holiness of God. And part of that was spurred by me because of R.C. Sproul, his death, and just what a champion he was for that concept. And where I'm at with this and where I think we need to move forward with this idea is just that I'm not sure that I really understand that God's righteousness is an actual threat on my life yeah. and how that should shape the outworkings of my theology. Yeah. So there's a place where I'd like to see us get back to that it's not just that God's holiness should offend our sensibilities. But like it offends our very essence. And I think that most of the time we don't realize that we're angry with God because we've been created in such a way to basically take on the original dignity that he gave to us and the position that God gave to us. And we don't realize that we're angry about that. Like subconsciously, we're angry about that. If somebody says to me, like, you are not living up to the standards or expectations I have for you, that instantly makes me upset because one, somebody is superimposing something on me. Right. And the second thing is they're telling me that I'm falling short. Yeah. So I feel like we need to get back to that. Yeah, and I think, you know, what you said is great, but on on another hand too is <laughs> it's not just it's Here not just go. that it's it's not just that God's righteousness offends us or our nature. It's actually the risky part is the opposite. Is that our unrighteousness well, right. affects and offends us doesn't affect. We'll get to that in mind. There, there we go. It offends God's righteousness. And so um you know, I do. I mean, mine are actually really connected to that. Is that we we don't have a proper understanding of the requirements that God has for us as Christians. Exactly. Um, on both ends of the spectrum, sometimes we we take God's requirements not seriously enough. Sometimes we take them too seriously. Sometimes we think that there's not enough of them. Um, but we we in all of our efforts to try to garner holiness for ourselves, we actually just make our situation worse on every kind of front. Yeah. I totally am on board with that. I think we need to get our minds around that in a real way. And there's this tendency in our culture to kind of subdue the holiness of God to be something that is, it's present, but it's been overwritten in a way because of Christ's right. love. Right. And there's part of that that's true. Right. But if we only start the story there, we're going to lose most of the gospel. So like the traditional Isaiah 6 like example of what it means to be in the presence of God. I, I this year in particular want to find myself just meditating in that because we've got Isaiah. He's by all accounts among the most holy in all of Israel as a prophet of God. Right. He comes before God and instead of being commended, he pronounces woe on himself, which of course that woe was generally directed toward like a, an outside group of people or an outside nation. Instead, he's declaring on himself. Right. 
And that's not my default or normative response before God. And it probably should be the starting point of all of my interaction. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting, you know, I'd have to dig into it a little bit, but I was listening as, as Ligonier has been reflecting on the death of Arce, he's probably been playing his clips a lot. And um, one of the things that's interesting that I would love to dig into more is that Isaiah is print- in the first five, six chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah is pronouncing woes on the nations. And his, he culminates by coming into God's presence, and he points out that he is not exempt from that right. by pronouncing the same calamity on himself um, that he did on the nations. And he's speaking as a prophet still. Right. So he's it's, prophetically it's pronouncing woe on himself because when confronted with the holiness of God, he is forced to recognize that nobody lives up to the standard. And I think so often when we're confronted with the holiness of God, we almost like flip that around. That like we see the holiness of God, and as Christians, we sort of instinctively see Christ's holiness in us, right? And we we say instead, "Woe on, woe on this group, woe on that group, woe on you know Trump or Hillary, woe on Black Lives Matters or whoever it is." And then all of a sudden, we are confronted with God's holiness, and we're like, "Yeah, well, I'm good, I'm fine." And did you just brush your? I did off just there? brush the dust <laughs> off my shoulder, and it's like, um. It's like we take exactly the opposite take. Yeah, we do. So I, th- I think that's a really good thing for us to to really dig into in the next year. So is how to does just that come back to fit it. into one of the top three things sure. you're thinking about for 2018? So as I look back on 2017, um, and I think about what the two big the two big controversies in the Reformed world were, there was the controversy that centered kind of around the Mark Jones, John Piper, or Scott Clark um, complex, right? And those that issue loomed so large on the church, the Reformed Church particularly during that time, that I think in the next year, we really need to take a step back and look at what legalism is. That's good. Because that word got thrown around a lot. Um, people were accusing Mark of, of legalism, people who were saying, um, we are going to have good works that accompany our faith, um, and that if we don't have the good works that accompany our faith, maybe we don't have any faith. Um, those people were very commonly accused of legalism. Um, and legalism also takes another turn of not just saying you have to have good works in order to obtain righteousness, which is not what Mark was saying, but it also takes the form of thinking you can obtain righteousness by means of good works. Right. And, um, you know, the, the Reformed bodies, the Reformed uh, theological tradition throughout its history has always kind of struggled with legalism. There's always been a tendency to take the the focus on God's holiness and on God's expectations of us and somehow turn those into something where we earn or or obtain uh, merit before God. So I just think this next year, it's going to be really important for all of us to sort of step back and dig in um, and really get our heads around what the role of the law is in the Christian life. That's because, good. yeah, to to say that the law doesn't have a role in the Christian life, which is sort of like a New Covenant theology um, perspective, um, really ends up being a problem. But it's almost more of a problem, and it's closer to kind of our natural tendencies to give the law of God, or any law, even if it's a law we create for ourselves, to give that more of a role in the life of a Christian than it ought to have. Right. So, Yeah, that's a really good conversation to have. And that needs to be nuanced because... My perception is that legalism is just like a really dangerous word because right. in Reformed or just general Christian circles, 
we recognize that legalism is abhorrent. And so whenever we get into discussion with somebody that basically steps on some sense of, I don't know, like liberty, we just want to throw out we're right. being legalistic yeah. and that's not helpful. And I think most of the time that word has totally been disconnected from any real definition. So if legalism is referring to the law, what is the law that we're talking about? Exactly. And how does that actually fit into what we're saying? Because I think most of the time somebody just says, well, you have different convictions than me and now you're a legalist. Right. Yeah. And, and, and particularly if your convictions are more strict or stronger in any sense than what yeah, I Yeah, exactly. But even sometimes if it's just a different conviction. Right. Um, sometimes that term still gets thrown around. And that, that's a really inflammatory term. Exactly. Because of how... Um, it's evocative. Yeah. It, because of how... And it's even worse. This is, just drives me nuts. Is like, um, you know the movie Sandlot? Yes. Where they're sitting on the... They're out on the Sandlot and there's that other team and they're getting ready to play ball. And the guy looks at him and he goes, you play ball like a girl. And it's like, all of a sudden, it's like, all right, we're going to throw it down right. now. The equivalent of that in Reformed theological discussions is calling someone a Pharisee. Right. Right. It's like, once yeah, that true. happens, I mean, legalism, okay, we can talk about legalism. You can call me a legalist, but you call me a Pharisee. And all of a sudden, it's like, I'm ready to punch you in the face. Whether that's theologically or actually punch you in the face, we're going to have words and they're not going to be pleasant. Right. Um, we might have fisticuffs and those aren't going to be pleasant either. So I think just really spending some time um, getting our heads around what legalism actually is, because there are people who do things like Pharisee. Right. They're out there. Um, there are people who put requirements on the law. And the Pharisees, the really big thing the Pharisees were doing, right, is not just adding to God's law. That's bad. Don't add to God's law. They were trying, at least in the most charitable read, they were trying to build a fence around God's law so you couldn't even get close to breaking it. But a lot of times what they were doing is they were setting up standards for other people that they themselves would not follow. Right. And so the Pharisee, the Pharisee accusation is also an accusation of hypocrisy, which is a separate thing. I mean, we talked about that on one of our episodes, but it's a separate thing from legalism. But that whole complex of things, it just becomes so inflammatory. It just shuts down conversation um, when, it's, when those words come out. And that's basically how it's used, right? Right. Oh, Most yeah, of the exactly. time, they were not trying to have honest or like helpful dialogue at that right. point. If you're making somebody feel like a Pharisee or accusing them as such. That, that is, I like your example. That's basically like the rapper equivalent of like a hype man. Like somebody drops yeah. Pharisee online. So like, Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's going down. Cause you see that if you're observing a thread somewhere and you see the P word come out, yeah, you know, nothing good is going to happen after that. Unless people are being, the other person is being super gracious. Yeah. I rarely seen a case among Christians where it was necessary to address a situation by yeah. calling somebody out as a, yeah, I, I can't think of one. I mean, the only instance that I would actually say it is someone was actually saying, um, and this does happen, I guess, now that I think about it. If someone was to say something like, well, drinking alcohol is not bad. It's not a sin in and of itself, but it could be a sin. So in order to not even come close to that, you shouldn't drink any alcohol. Right. And to even even to do that is sinful because now you're you're sort of towing the line. That would be like a genuinely pharisaical thing to say. Um, that's not the same as saying like, well, you should exercise prudence. If something right. is a temptation for you, then you should stay away from it. Even if you might be able to participate in some sense without sinning, if it's a temptation, it's just wise for you to stay away from it. But that's not at all. I mean, that's not what the Pharisees were doing. They were actually saying it's a sin to even engage in, engage those. in those things because then you might come right. close to the law. And you'd be under the same penalty in exactly. their minds as if you had actually broken the law. Right, right. Yeah, this is going to sound maybe a little bit sketchy, but I think it's important that we remember that even in the gospel, 
there is impounded the entirety of the law. So you and right. I have talked about this before. One of the things that's strange that people don't often realize is when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, that is actually all law. Yeah, yeah. And, and so when we separate that and make it sound like, well, it's just, that's all grace. Jesus is redefining things in terms of something outside of the law. It's actually altogether not the way right. he was speaking and not the way that those who were his hearers were understanding what was right. being said. Yeah. So coming back to the law is the right thing, but people hate to go there because they law do. sounds crushing. It sounds bad. It is crushing and bad, it, yeah. but it's not bad. The law of God is not bad, but it is crushing. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the point. Right. Right. But there's like a good crushing in like, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, right. there's no life. And there's a bad crushing in the sense of like, well, I just don't want to deal with it exactly. or talk about this. Thing. Yeah. Not the right. Yeah. So Jesse, what's your, um, what's your next item we have to tackle? So another thing I want to tackle this year in our conversation and together is this idea of definitive sanctification. Okay. So can I throw a verse in Romans at you? Please do. Okay. I love the Bible. <laughs> this is so much better in person. This is from Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So here's what I've been thinking a lot about and where I think the Reformed community needs to kind of come back to center on is that in all of Paul's writing, he's given two separate things. He's giving like an indicative and an imperative. He's always got this book-ended approach. So he's giving us an imperative of something that we should do, but it comes always with this indicative. Right. So for instance, walk in the manner worthy of the life to which you have been called because you are sanctified. And I think sometimes we think of sanctification as we get justified, and that is definitive. And then we kind of start at ground zero or at level zero on the scale. And sanctification is something God works in us, or some people believe it's something we mostly work on right. with God's help. Right. And what Paul is preaching to all of his churches is that that's not the case. There's a definitive sanctification as well. So instead of starting at zero, you're starting at some level, in my example, right. that's beyond that. And I think that this also reminds us that sanctification, as you and I have soapboxed a couple of times before, sanctification is something God does right. in us. And we need to get back to that because here, what Paul is saying that's so liberating, I think, is not that you will cease from sinning, but you're no longer a slave to sin. That that's what the resurrection and the death of Jesus Christ did. Right. It broke that slavery. So I want to get in a new frame of mind on that this year. Yeah. So just to piggyback off that, let me read um, oh, chapter- please do. Chapter 13 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, Article 1 says, They who are once effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Article 2 says, uh, sorry, yeah, Article 2, this sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abiding still some rem remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh of the lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Um, and then chapter three goes on to say that it, the, the remaining corruption um, may seem to prevail for a time, but God supplies strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ to overcome. But the, the main part that I wanted to point at is chapter one or article one is talking about um, who is sanctified 
and what what the means are that they're sanctified. Right. And nowhere in there does it say anything about the person being sanctified as being a means of that sanctification. It says, they really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. So there, there is disagreement in the Reformed world as to what role a person plays in sanctification, whether it's somehow synergistic, like we partner with God in our own sanctification. But I don't think that the Westminster Confession has any room for that kind of nonsense. Agreed. And I'll call it what it is. It's, it's nonsense. <laughs> We're just getting after we it. We no more sanctify ourselves than we justify or regenerate ourselves. I agree with that. Or, will be, or we will glorify ourselves or resurrect ourselves or any of the other benefits that Christ has purchased for us. We are recipients of that. We receive it through faith. It's done to us. And then because of what is done to us, there are real outcomes, real things that happen. So I, I agree completely that that is definitely somewhere we need to go. I think the problem is, at least in my own life, when you hear that for the first time, I think you can tend to pull back a little bit mm-hmm. because we've been taught that that is synergistic, at least in the sense that I need to do something and that God will honor what I do. And then right. of course he's working, but we're kind of saying he's working somewhere alongside of me. Right. But when you look at it the way that Paul is speaking about it, we're separating justification as being in a sense, I mean, they're, they're together, but I'm for the purposes of trying to delineate right. what the pieces are. For justification, we're dealing with the guilt of sin. In sanctification, definitive sanctification, we're talking about power over sin. Right. So this allows us the liberty to say, I should move forward in life knowing that I will certainly sin at times. However, that power to be enslaved to it, to go back to it like vomit, the dog that licks up its own vomit, has been broken. That's like a real and actual place in which we live. Right. And I think that changes us when we come to pray through this process saying, Holy Spirit, help me to understand what it means to be made a saint. And this is why Paul can say ridiculous things like work in uh, work. Yes. Also, you should work. That's something that he <laughs> says, work with your hands. But when he says walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, like that's right. a really bold statement. Yeah. It's kind of like buck up. Right. Man up. Exactly. Do the thing. Like we've said, the Christian life is sometimes, yeah, try harder because exactly. God demands that you do it that way right. and he will empower you, but it's because of his first cause, his first. Right. Yeah. I heard it once said, and I, I don't remember where, and maybe I made this up, but what I've heard I'm fine with that. is that in justification, we're freed from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, we're freed from the power of sin. Yes. And in glorification, we'll be freed from the presence of sin. And so there's this, this stages of redemption where we no longer face a legal penalty. We're no longer under the all-encompassing power of sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we can ever go a moment without sin because as the Westminster Catechisms you know, tell us, sin is any want of conformity to God's law. Right. And we are never in full conformity with God's law. So to think that we could go a moment or a day uh, without sinning is, that just doesn't work. But the, the power of sin to make everything we do sinful exactly is now no more. So we can genuinely, truly love God, even if it's not perfectly. We can still do things that are good things without the corruption of sin, um, but that doesn't mean we ever are free from it. And then in, in glorification, we're free from the presence. Right. No longer is it within us, but it's also no longer within anyone around us or anywhere in all of creation. Right. Which is why I presume Paul can say things like, it's no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells in me. Right. There's this total different separation. So yeah, I'm just trying to push on this idea that we are definitively sanctified when we are regenerated. And that yeah. means something. It's valuable. And I've been trying to like come up with a conceptualization of this. 
And the only thing I can think of, though this is just historical for me because this is not like our generation. Right. But I'm thinking, or what's come to me is all these images after World War II of the grand celebrations of the defeat of the enemy. Yeah. Which was a moral battle, besides being one that was militaristic, of course. It was wrapped up in this idea of good fighting evil. And the celebrations, the relief and the joy. And right. that's the kind of victory that we're talking about here. A crushing defeat yeah. of the power of sin in our lives. And if anybody is like me, or I don't know if you're like me, sometimes I kind of mope around in that sin rather than thinking Jesus has conquered right, and has definitively sanctified me. So that might be progressively sanctified. And as Paul said, if you started with the Holy Spirit, why would you walk a step further exactly. without that Spirit being yeah. able to sanctify you? So I don't know, just standing up tall and moving forward this year with a little bit more, can we call that like spirit swagger or like I guess, yeah. definitive sanctification swagger? Sanctification swagger. I like that. Yeah. Although then it's then it's prideful and it's no longer. <laughs> so maybe we can't. Like, no, I'm talking about like, yeah, it's got to be like that Jesus swagger. Like, yeah. Did Jesus swagger at all? I don't think so. Swagger implies like a sense of pride, I think, that I, I think would probably. I guess kind of, but he was also like firm in his identity. Yeah. What's the word for that then? That's like. I don't know. <laughs> maybe that'll be like the top. That'll be like the number seven thing we have to address in 2018 is whether or not Jesus had spirit swagger. Listen, nobody's covering this on nobody's a podcast. Covering this. this is uncharted territory. All right, so what else are you thinking about? So we talked about legalism, and then the flip side of this controversy that didn't really come up all that much, but I think is in the background, and I want to be really clear, I'm not accusing R. Scott Clark of this, but this is in the backdrop of the controversy, is antinomianism, right? So legalism, broadly defined, is the idea that somehow our works are conditional of our salvation, either because we can sin ourselves out of the kingdom or we can work our way into the kingdom. Antinomianism is the idea that somehow the law has no place whatsoever. And that can take a lot of forms. Um, you know, I've, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again, Tullian Javidian was like the master of this form of antinomianism, right? It was this idea that no matter what you do, whether you sin or whether you don't, whether you succeed or whether you fail, whether you're being increasingly sanctified or whether you stay in your own wretched estate that you were in when you were justified, none of that really matters because you are positionally in Christ. And so, you know, you're free to fail. It doesn't matter. And I think that it's not too far of a stretch to say that when looking at Tullian Tavidian's life and the fact that he's back up in a pulpit in a way too tight shirt preaching again, the shirt he, has to come oh, into the this. shirt. The shirt. We'll talk about the shirt in a second. All right. Um, that's the fruit of his flavor of soteriology. It's an outworking. It's an outworking. And you, you were telling me earlier today. You saw a tweet of his or something where it, it just seemed like nothing has changed. Nothing right. has happened. Um, we've got lunatics like Paul Zoll saying, "Well, yeah, Tullian's Tullian's experience has uniquely qualified him to preach the gospel." N- no, no, it hasn't. Right. Right. If anything. It's well, obviously, it has disqualified him because he's not a Christian. He isn't repentant. He has fled from church discipline. So, but even even if what we're saying, even if what he was saying is true, that a sin uniquely qualifies you, well, then we're all uniquely qualified because all of us are sinners. So, <laughs> right. on one level, you know, people in that kind of hyper grace camp want to say, like, well, my sin is no worse than yours before God, unless I'm using it to bolster my credentials. Then it's way worse than your sin. So like what antinomianism tends to do is it actually elevates sin as kind of a badge. And in that same verse that we're talking about that you talked about. I was about, just going to say this. Yeah. Should we sin that grace may abound? 
The answer is no, because that's ridiculous. Right. But a lot of times in the antinomianism camp, the hypergrace camp, and those are the same thing, if we're being honest, the answer is yes. Why not? Why not? There's no reason not to. So if you're Tulian Davidian, you want to have an affair or a couple of them, then why not? Right. You're free to fail. I mean, that may sound harsh, but that's the reality of it. And I mean, you could, Mark Driscoll has some of these tendencies, right? I'm going to blow up my church, not really, but I'm going to blow up my church spiritually. I'm going to be spiritually abusive as a pastor. I'm going to um, say no thank you when the church tries to discipline me. I'm going to take a huge severance package, and then I'm going to run, and I'm going to start another church somewhere else. Right. And all of that's okay because, you know, God forgives. There's grace for that. Well, okay, yes, there's grace for that if you're repentant. Right. Right. Grace is not a condition. Repentance is not a condition of God showing you grace. It is the result. So if there is no repentance, then what can we say? Has God shown you grace? Probably not. And that's what Paul's getting at. Should we sin that grace may abound? Well, no, because we are repentant believers. Right. So we would walk in a way worthy of our calling because we've been called. Right. So I think we, we have to tackle that as we tackle legalism. Because that was something that wasn't really talked about all that much. Because um, the quote-unquote offending party, if we're looking at Mark Jones as the person who's offending orthodoxy, which I don't think he was, but that was kind of the approach that people were taking, antinomianism wasn't on the radar. But antinomianism was, in a lot of ways, what people like Piper and Jones were reacting to. And I don't, I don't know which is more of a prevalent issue in the Reformed That's world That's a good right question. Um, but, it, you know, I think Sinclair Ferguson in The Whole Christ, and probably in Devoted to God, too, he, he makes it in a lot of different places, points out that antinomianism and legalism kind of breathe the same air. Yes. Kind of paradoxically. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I mean, it strikes me that true repentance is, in, in contrition is willing to accept in an unbridled way consequences which it's rare that you get somebody who has such an extreme philosophy or theology and you actually get to see it worked out in right. their life, in their lifetime. It's such yeah. a public way. And for those two gentlemen, we really have seen that. And there's a difference in my mind between saying you're free to fail in Christ in the sense that there is forgiveness right. for wrongdoing, but there's nothing to say, I encourage you to seek out instances where you fail. Or conversely, I guess to say, well, I fell into this sin, but now I see that God just used that to show me grace. Exactly. And now I'm, I'm, I'm more capable to speak to people about the gospel because I've had this horrible sin, which I really haven't dealt with the consequences. I've just tried to move on because the consequences can be covered by free grace. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, that's Crazy. what antinomianism does. Yeah. Right? It takes the law and it takes away all of its bite and it makes it so all that's left is the gospel. And any time that you don't have the gospel accompanying the law, you're going to end up with some sort of screwy theology. Because the gospel is totally, you know, if you want to take like a Vantillian kind of phrase on it. And who wouldn't want to Who do that? wouldn't want to? Uh, pretty much anyone outside of the Reformed <laughs> world. But the law is kind of the precondition of the gospel. Right. Right. It's, it's a, the necessary precondition for the gospel to be intelligible. Because if someone comes into the room and goes, good news, everyone, I saved you from your sins, and there's no such thing as sin, then that person is rightfully a lunatic. They're crazy yeah. because they're, Nobody cares. they're convinced that they've saved you from something that doesn't exist. Right. And so for, for a person to say that for a Christian, the law doesn't have any force in, right. and in any sense. Um, that really is just a nonsense position because Christians still need the gospel. I still need to hear the gospel. I still need to hear that my ongoing sin, which if I'm honest with myself, I know is there, whether I have the law to tell me or not, I still don't even live up to the standards I would set for myself. 
I still need the gospel right. to, to tell me that Christ has paid for that right. and to call me to a higher standard, to call me forward to holiness. Because just saving me from my sins and leaving me, leaving me where I'm at is not salvation as the Bible presents it. No, it's not. And imagine if you're on the other end of antinomianism. So a lot of this gets worked out in relationship. So right. I'm thinking for somebody that is wrong, let's say either in relationship, by, in marriage or friendship or whatever, it's like betrayed by somebody. And that person is antinomian and just basically says, well, this was so grace could abound in my life. Right. The person who is wronged, especially if they're not a believer, is looking at the person who is and saying, is there no justice exactly. of God? How, right. how is it that you can just say, well, everything is well and you can move on and chalk that up to grace? Whereas there is suffering and hurt that's been caused here. And there's no justifiable avenue for making recompense. It's an awful thing. So they're both right. dangerous. I would say that I think there's a lot of antinomian tendencies in our hearts, generally speaking. Yeah. There's legalism as well, but this is the one that's the flavor that makes us feel good. Right. So, I mean, we don't feel quite as good being pharisaical, but we feel pretty good when we can say, I can live how I want. Right. And there's forgiveness for everything that I do without, you know, kind of exception. By the way, how is it possible that like you and I have picked like three kind of separate things and they've basically all intertwined? Yeah. Yeah. And we didn't, we didn't coordinate that. No. I mean, we talked about this before the show. <laughs> we listed our things just so we knew we weren't going to overlap. But yeah. And when we get to my third one, it, it's all going to come together. So I'm pretty excited about that. So what's, uh, what's, um, I'm your, so excited. what's your next uh, on the list, Jesse? So here's the last thing for me. I'm going back to something that we talked about, but I want to hit it hard again. And that is the theology of covenant. And yes. I just don't think we can run away from this because I think what I've seen is that we focus sometimes on the covenant as, as a descriptor of what God has done, the acts that God has accomplished, the things that he has administered that bring us a benefit. And we're just like, yeah, I love covenant theology because it makes it clear to me what God does. But I think we need to focus it on what it says about God's nature and his character. Right. This is kind of going back to this whole idea of you get Christ, not just the benefits. Yep. And with the covenant, sometimes we focus on the fact that we get all this stuff with it. But the bottom line is this just shows to me like how amazing God is. Like his condescension is his covenant. Right. Like because of where God is in his holiness. There's no reason that we should, any of us should be alive. And there's certainly no reason why we should have any relationship. This is something God does. Right. And just every time I look at the covenant, I'm seeing, man, the character of God is amazing that he would do this. So I know that's, that that can be kind of a hot button topic in some ways, but I think we need to look at it and say, what does this show about the character of God? Yeah. And I think what, um, you know, what really strikes me, you're right that all of these subjects kind of circle the same drain. That's a really terrible analogy for this, but mm. they all kind of they it's all really kind uplifting. of revolve around the same central point. And um, you know, one thing that didn't get called out as much, and this is what frustrated me so much about the Piper Jones Clark thing last year, is that the Piper Jones Clark thing was between two people who hold to covenant theology, Jones and Clark, and then there was Piper, who's not a covenant theologian, who doesn't hold to a covenant of works, for example. And so in all other arenas, Jones and Clark should have been allies, and, right. and they should have been critiquing Piper's theology. And because of the features of the, we'll say, the dynamics between Jones and Clark in other arenas, um, the fact that Piper's theology is aberrant in certain areas got ignored. And in this context, they're important. They're important aberrations, right? So getting back to covenant theology 
in a lot of ways, what we're saying is what we need to do in 2018 is we need to go back to the basics of reform theology. Yeah, right on. Is we need to go back to the things that are fundamental to what it means to be reformed. A right understanding of the covenants, which means a right understanding of the law and the gospel and how those two things interplay with each other and what that does to us. Right. Right. And, and who the God is that we're in covenant with, which is what the holiness thing comes together. So I think, you know, when it comes to covenant theology, we have to understand it's not just some, um, it's not even a doctrine within the system when we're talking about systematic theology. It's not like a theory. Right. It's, it's the structure of the system itself. It's the architecture of the system itself is that we can't, we can't pull covenant theology out as some sort of like doctrine that we can maybe plug in or and plug something else in this place. You can do that with a lot of things in Reformed theology. You can take, this is going to be controversial to my Presbyterian listeners, but you can take Presbyterian beta baptism out. Yes, I was just going to say can, that actually. Right, you can pull that piece out and you can replace it with, um, with credo baptism. Now, you can have discussions about whether, whether that piece fits right, whether it whether it you know doesn't fit quite right, whether it's consistent with the rest of the system, but you can do that. There's a lot of things like that. You can't do that with covenant theology. If you pull covenant theology out, you're talking about disrupting the entire system. Yes, from the very beginning, from from in eternity past, is our theology is reliant on covenant theology. So I, I couldn't agree more that we need to get to the bottom of of covenant theology and really get our heads around it. Yeah, because in the end, it's not just about whether or not we think covenant theology fits best, so to speak, or explains the best administration of all the things that God has done, but it's concerned with his exaltation. Exactly. And when you look at it in that light, you're going to see that God is receiving glory, if we understand it properly, in how he sets it up. Like he's the author of it, he administers it, and I think it is very clear in the scripture. So it may sound like maybe me in particular, I'm taking like a really high line on that, but I think we need to understand covenant theology for what it is and not as a caricature or some alternate worldview that maybe it fits and there's right. other verses that go against it. We need to really come back to that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so hit me with your last one. So in addition to the, um, the we'll call it the legalism, antinomianism controversy from last year, the other controversy which started before last year, but kind of heated up again a little bit towards the middle of the year and took a little bit of a strange turn towards the end of the year is controversies in the area of theology proper or the, the doctrine of, the nature of God himself. Um, so we had the EFS stuff, which we probably, I'm sure, will do more episodes on EFS at some point because it's coming back around. But towards the end of the year, James Dolezal re- releases a book, which I got for Christmas, which I'm very excited about. Or I got for a random uh, day in the <laughs> middle of December that has no bearing on anything, just a random... Anyway, um, I got for Christmas, and I'm very excited about it. And John Frame, who by all accounts is a Westminster Covenant, you know, yeah, Westminster Confession of Faith theologian comes at it and basically says, well, no, this whole divine simplicity thing, this divine immutability thing is mostly just um, Aristotelian categories overlaid on top of the Bible. Which is a huge deal. Which is a huge deal <laughs> because he's, an, as far as I know, I, I think he's an ordained minister in, in one of the Presbyterian bodies. Right. You may be able to convince them to, to allow you some exceptions and some other things, but your doctrine of God is probably not one of them. Um, so he holds a view called he calls biblical mutabilism, which I call nonsense. Um, you can't have a God, the God of the Bible, who changes. Right. So this this whole it's thing, an oxymoron. right? Exactly. This whole controversy that arose is still going, and it, it just blows my mind because 
you know, these are things I always say it when I'm talking about church history that like there's no new heresies, there's no new controversies, but then it always really surprises me when these same old controversies come back around. And this is something that's so fundamental to Christianity. We're not talking about, well, if you don't affirm this, then you're not a good Presbyterian. We're talking about if you deny this, you're not a Christian anymore. Right. And so I'm not saying that John Frame is not a Christian. I'm not saying that Scott Oliphant is not a Christian. But I'm saying like if their theology is correct and they hold it the way that they are, they sort of seems they do, then we're talking about a different religion at this point. Right. People like Calvin would burn people like John Frame at the stake if they failed to recant of this kind of stuff. And like I said, I, I've, I've used that statement before. That's not to um, make light of that or to say that that's an appropriate response, but that's the severity of this departure that we're talking about. <laughs> much clarify like we don't condone yeah, I don't stake burning don't burn john frame at the stake yeah. but but if you were calvin in geneva that's how big a deal this right, is that's how big of a deal this is this is the kind of thing that like people get exiled to other countries in the patristic era it's kind of always been weird to me that in the middle ages the punishments got more severe but that's it, a whole different, is strange yeah that's a whole different thing so theology proper integrates with all these other things that we're talking about but getting our, it's almost like we have to go back to the top of the system of our doctrine and start all over because we have, we have entertained for a very long time. Academically, we've entertained theologians who are just destroying the foundations of our faith. They're not trying to, right? but they're, they're mutating and um, mutating, no pun intended. Um, maybe it was a little intended. I don't know. But they're taking things that we took for granted as just, this is the way that it is. And there was no controversy over it. And they're going back and rethinking these things, which is exactly what the Socinians did. And we we defeated the Socinians, but now we're like letting them back into the show. Right. You would actually, <laughs> that sentence sounded like you and I defeated them and we were letting them back into yeah. this podcast. Yeah. That's not what I meant. Which has never happened. That's true. So here's the thing is we need some kind of modern day equivalent, less extreme, but of like the stake burning because- the, the, here's the thing is what you're bringing up is a really good point. This is, should be important enough that we make a big deal out of it. That it right. doesn't just get passed around in literature and we all kind of say, well, isn't that interesting? And yeah. I don't necessarily agree with that, but it's fine if he wants to write his books because that gets pushed out. It goes through teaching. It goes into congregations. It goes into people's lives. And right. then we have, we have another God. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, on some level, right, the EFS controversy mostly circulated around Bruce Ware and Wayne Grew, who are um, they are, whatever their ordination status is, it's in Baptist kind of congregationalist-based circles. So just to be blunt, there wasn't really anything anybody could do about it, right? They couldn't, right. they probably couldn't fire them from their teaching posts because their teaching posts weren't ecclesiastical positions. Um, they've, they were probably instrumental in writing the faith statements of the ordaining bodies that they're part of. But what really just strikes me as strange about people like Oliphant and Frame is there's a body of people that they are accountable to who hold their ordination credential. So it somebody could file charges in whatever Presbyterian body frame is ordained in or was ordained in, um, could file charges and have his ordination. He's, you know, when you are ordained as a Presbyterian teaching elder, you take vows to uphold the theology of the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's true in the OPC, it's true in the PCA. And you part of your vow is to say, if I ever at any time begin to hold a position that's contrary to this, I'll notify my presbytery and we will we'll go from there, basically. Right. And so I, I guess the equivalent of stake burning, maybe it's not the equivalent, but the closest thing we might come to it would be to actually have a investigation of their theology and 
and see, well, is your theology actually in line with that? But I, I think what the hesitancy to do that is, and I, I have to be cautious and char- charitable here, is I think there's a, a hesitancy to do that, because what does that mean then for all of these seminaries that have taught people it's this theology using these textbooks for how many years? Right. And for Grudem, it's kind of the same way. Like, if we decide that we're going to kind of blackball Grudem from the evangelical world because he's teaching a modern form of tritheism and not realizing it, well, what do we do with the fact that nearly every evangelical seminary in North America uses his theology as their textbook? Right. I mean, get another textbook, obviously, but like, what do we do with the fact that we've been okay? And it's not like this is a new thing. This is in that textbook. Um, And Frame has a systematic theology that's also very popular. Um, Lots of apologetics material that's also very popular. What do we do with that? So I think there's a hesitancy. And with Frame, I think probably too, he's coming to the end of his career. He's getting older. Um, There's probably a hesitancy to say like, we're going to decry this guy right right at the end of his career. But to me, that that reeks of a form of cowardice because this is the gospel truth we're talking about. If you lose the nature of God, you've lost the gospel. And so to say, for whatever reason, we're not going to pursue this to the highest extent. We're not going to contend for the faith in this area because, well, he's close to retirement. Like that is just a major problem. So I agree. I'm not going to change the world. I'm not going to make John Frame or Wayne Grudem repent of their theology or anything like that. Um, that's not my role, but somebody has to do something. So getting back to theology proper as a whole, finding good resources, making sure we're well grounded in the, the confessional reform tradition that we affirm, um, I think is absolutely a vital for everyone in 20. Basically, in the two minutes since I said that, I'm kind of regretting the stake burning <laughs> that I brought up. But I was just trying to emphasize that it is really important. And maybe yeah. the way that we do that properly, as you're suggesting, is just that we get ourselves in a place where when we're listening to a sermon in person or online, we're reading something from a theologian, that we have enough sensibility from our education, our study of the scriptures, that we're able to identify when something's off. Yes. That even like a native English speaker can hear when an idiom is wrong and they don't know why, but they just know it's off. Exactly. That you're that well immersed in theology. That's where I want to be. Right. So even so it's like a natural guard. Like the spirit is working in you as you study so that when you're listening, everything is being filtered. You're testing everything. Exactly. And some of that testing should happen almost subconsciously. That's how connected we should be. It should happen subconsciously. Yes, exactly. The Holy Spirit. So I agree with you. Like we don't I don't know what we need to do, but it is a victory if you can read something and say, This is off. And I need to investigate this because it's not like you're going to run into somebody probably at work that's going to say like at the water cooler or while you're grabbing coffee, like, so biblical mutability, <laughs> like where are you at on that? But you should be able to identify when right. something is wrong. Yeah. And I can give you a way to do that. Memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism. <laughs> I, I know where this is going. I know that it sounds funny, but- No, I wasn't um, laughing at that. I was just laughing at the buildup there. question, was it question five, I think, maybe six, somewhere in the top 10, because that's as far as I am, is what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, power, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Man, Nailed it. Was, he, he made eye contact with me the I entire did. time. So, but, but when you have Beautiful. that memorized, right? And then all of a sudden you're reading John Frame and he goes, well, in a certain sense, God is changeable. You're going, no, God is a spirit, infinite, right. eternal, and unchangeable. Da, da, da. You know, you, you have that framework built the same way we have a linguistic framework built. That when someone says, I am running to the store, you know, that's right. 
But if they say, I are running to the store, you know that's wrong. Now, I don't know anybody who hasn't studied some sort of language that could explain in technical language why that's wrong, what the problem is with that. But everybody that I know would say that's wrong. Yes. So the reason for that is because you've got a framework. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism is a very helpful, not I won't say errant, because I don't believe that it is wrong, but fallible, right? It right. could be wrong. Um, it's a very helpful framework that has stood the test of time and was designed to be memorized by children. So I don't care who you are. If you tell me that it's too hard, I'm going to remind you that it was designed to be memorized by children. <laughs> so teach your children and learn it yourself. At the same time. Yes. I, maybe that should be part of our 2018 push is there you go. get back into the catechism. Because you're right. It's a beautiful tool. It's basically this wonderful omnibus exactly. to summarize a lot of stuff. And the way we're using it is not as a crutch. I can't tell you when people will say, well, why when we have a discussion do you go straight to the confessions? The reason we start there often is because it gives us the succinct description and the rubric or the framework, like you said, right. to encapsulate an idea that then pushes us back into scripture. So if you memorize it, you know that's question five and you're reading something and you think, this doesn't comport. If you want the scriptures, you just go back to your version with the proof text and you start there to unpack it. Exactly. But at least you know where to start. Whereas a lot of Christians will say, well, this guy is making a really strong case for this biblical mutability. Maybe he is right. I wouldn't even know the first place where I could go real quickly to see if I could stand up against that idea or what the counterfactual to that would be. And that is where there's great strength, at least in some ways, with the catechisms. Yeah. Um, just for clarification's sake, it's actually question four. So ah, guess I didn't memorize that part right. So close. So close. But if you, if you want to memorize that, you can do that in the Reformed Brotherhood. You can. Scripture typer you group, can. right? Yes. So we have a Reformed Brotherhood scripture typer uh, group that we have admittedly not managed perfectly, but um, we are going to be making sure we add catechism questions. Um, it's a little tricky to add catechism questions, but I think I figured out a pretty good uh, format for that. So um, if you want to join, you can send us an email at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com and we will get you an invitation. Otherwise, I believe that it is an open group on Scripture Typer. So if you search for it, you should be able to find it. It should be the only Reformed Brotherhood. But we're going to have uh, passages in there. I think right now Psalm 1. We got Psalm 1 uh, in there. Psalm 23 is probably in there. Um, and then uh, we're going to work on a book of the Bible. We haven't decided on what that is. We're going to try to memorize a whole New Testament epistle, probably be like Col Colossians or Galatians or something like that. And then we're going to add the Westminster Shorter Catechism questions. We're going to add a new question every week. So if you don't Boom. keep up, it's going to be a lot of work for you to catch up. <laughs> so um, that's not a threat. That's just a just <laughs> statement of experience of my own that if you fall behind on this. So here's a little confession time, not like the Westminster confession, like right, confession, here we go. public confession real. of sin. So um, over the week that Jesse is here in New Hampshire, the rest of the family is also here. And it's kind of a chaotic week. There's a lot going on. There's it's good times. There's babies and puppies and showers and. I have to work. It just there's a lot going on. We always take showers for the record. We That's do. Not unique yeah, to no, this no. Week. But but there's there's like a whole like coordinating of showers because there's eight people or eight adults and you know two showers, um, two two available showers, and so I've fallen a little behind on my uh, Bible memorization. And I opened my app this morning and it was like you have 59 verses overdue, and I was like, oh, <laughs> oh man, get after it. So get after it. Keep up with it. That's the way to go. Here's the thing about the scripture typer. It's a really great app. It helps you by helping you to first memorize it. And then it puts a little schedule together for you to help you review them. So it's like weed in the garden, so to right. speak. You plant everything, you memorize something, you come back to it. 
it's a great tool that I think doesn't have legalistic tendencies to, to <laughs> circle back around. So come along for the journey because I'm this year thinking of Scripture Typer as kind of this faith-filled risk in the sense that I think God honors the memorization of His Word. Yes. So in some ways, I'm kind of saying to the Lord, I want to taste and see that you're good through the Scripture, through exactly. memorization. That's a great way to and think about it. I'm trusting that you're going to make it happen. So like, no matter what person you are, if you're the kind of person that's like, I, I don't do memorization, I can't, I've tried before, try this. And yes. I think that the Lord will bless you through it. I really do. I firmly believe that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just forgot what I was going to say, so it must not have been that important. I guess not. Yeah. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> we'll just end on a total. Which is great. Casting in person is fantastic. Let's end on this note. Let's talk about real quick how many vehicles you have jump-started in the past <laughs> two days. So if for those of we, we we've tried to uh, we've heard your feedback that the reformed brotherhood weathercast is not our our best light. Uh, so we've tried to avoid the the weather reports, but it has been bitterly cold over this Christmas. Uh, sorry, this non-religious, non-holy day, <laughs> non-pagan, non-pagan winter reason for celebration. I don't know. Uh, it's been bitterly cold and it's going to continue to be bitterly cold. And so we got out, uh, we were going to something, we were going to, to dinner or lunch or something the other day, and we came upstairs, and Jesse tried to start his car, and it was like, just straight up dead. But it was also like below zero. Yeah, it was currently below zero when we, when we did this. Right. And um, so I had to jump his car. And then we came home from the movies today, and um, I get this little note from our, our father, not our heavenly father, from our earthly father. But even better, and he's like, uh, before you go up to the parsonage to podcast, could you jumpstart my car? <laughs> so I've been a jumpstarting uh, fiend this week. Batteries are dropping like flies. Here's where I want to end, and it's only slightly weather related, but can we just soapbox this for like one second? Let's do I, it. I think I want to bring others into this conversation, into our true lives, as if this hasn't been authentic <laughs> heretofore. But let's talk about the Fahrenheit scale just real quick. Oh, man. And that you brought up this really interesting point. How is the Fahrenheit scale like relative to itself? What is like the universal constant? So that actually got me thinking because I was like, dang, that's actually a good observation. And I looked up and found that zero Fahrenheit, Dr. Fahrenheit, I know his I first name, George Fahrenheit, was <laughs> like, <laughs> here's how I'm going to scale this thing out for my scale. Zero degrees Fahrenheit is the temperature of a solution that's equal parts. What did I say? Like ice and brine. Brine and ice. Yeah. So dumb. That is a dumb scale, right? So dumb. So let's con let's compare this to a good scale. So <laughs> a good measurement scale should be connected to something in reality, right? So when you, I, this all started because I looked at the thing and it said negative seven degrees below zero. You don't have to say below zero, negative seven degrees. And I thought, what in reality is that seven degrees below? Right. And if we're talking about the Celsius scale, it means that on a scale of one to one to one hundred or zero to one hundred, the temperature would be seven degrees below zero, which is the freezing point of water. And if you go to one hundred and seven degrees, you'd be seven degrees above. above. So that's the concrete reality, and that we have freezing water and boiling water. So the changes in state of water. So I asked, well, what's the one Fahrenheit? What's it connected to? And the answer is some ridiculous, arbitrary, nonsense thing. There's nothing. But I think let's encourage ourselves and everybody else to start talking about temperatures in that way. So when somebody's like, what's the temperature outside? You can be like, it's actually 45 degrees above the temperature, the temperature of, of an equal solution of brine and salt. 
let me bring this all back and show that I'm a master of yes. tying everything together. So the Fahrenheit scale is like legalism, <laughs> right? It's arbitrary standards attached oh to nothing. There is no connection to reality. You could not piece that together if you tried to. Jesse and I are both intelligent guys. We have multiple degrees from different institutions, and neither of us could come up with anything. We had to look on Wikipedia. Right on. Celsius is like the law. It's actually connected to something real. It's a real standard. It's a real measurement. So that's just my connection. There's no resolution to that. It's just me trying to bring it back to <laughs> theology. That somehow seems like it makes the Europeans way more holy than it us. It does. It does. You never know. You never know. Uh, well, this has been exceptional. This has been the definitive <laughs> start to the 2018 year. Yes. I'm, I'm super excited about this year, and I'm excited that this is kind of like a little primer. Like We're going to come back to these topics in greater detail yeah. in this year. Yeah. So if you, um, if you disagree with our list, you think something is more important, or you think that's something that we have said is not important, um, feel free to email us. And we would love to get ideas for topics. Yes. So Jesse and I love coming up with topics on our own. We try to kind of keep our fingers on the pulse of what's going on in the reformed world and speak to topics that are important and meaningful. But if you have a topic uh, that you really want us to do an episode on, please send it to us. Uh, email, Twitter, um, whatever way you can get it to us. We would really appreciate those ideas. And 2018 is going to be the year of voicemails on the podcast. It is. So what is that number? 603-444-2767. I think it's actually 607, right? 607. <laughs> 603 is the area code in New Hampshire. 607-444-BROS. Uh, if you want to call the first number, please do that. And just, and just have a conversation about Christ with whoever picks up that number. That's like, that's like a prank call evangelism. Oh, man. But it's not prank because it's like you're going to actually evangelize, right? Okay. I'm going to tell a quick story. That is, I don't know if you've heard this story or not. Right, and then I'm we'll not, round it out. Right, I'm stoked. Hit the me. dog, I can hear the dog barking downstairs, wants to get out of here. So I don't know if you've heard this story yet, but um, our mother got, I almost said not our heavenly mother, but there is a <laughs> heavenly mother. Our mother yeah. got a random phone call at like three in the morning. Really? And so she answered the phone. You, you get a phone call at three in the morning and you assume it's bad. Something's news. wrong. So she answered the phone and said, hello. And the person on the other side said, um, I'm sorry to call so late, but I'd like to talk to someone about God. Seriously? So she had like, a, I don't know if it was a long conversation, but she had like a conversation with someone about God because they randomly called. We can't wow. figure out, we can't figure out how they got that number. We, I'm, I'm thinking that somehow they got, a, they reckoned that it was a church because the church phone number rings to their house. But um, yeah, it's a pretty amazing story. That's a gr that actually makes me feel convicted about not answering my phone when I see a number I don't recognize. Yeah, yeah. I, should answer. I mean, you could be evangelizing a robot for all you know, but yeah. <laughs> robot evangelism. That's okay. They're yeah. taking all of our jobs. They Tony. are taking all of our jobs. Not my jobs. I'm a secretary. I sort paper. Actually, they probably are taking it <laughs> by definition. <laughs> On that note, this has been great. Yeah, it has. So until next year, Wait, no. When you hear this, it's going to be this year. <laughs> oh, man. We're awful with numbers. J Jesse, fix this for me and take us out. Until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.